there are a couple of ways that we look at it. We're looking at it, the phase of the customer lifecycle, meaning owner onboarding, owner engagement, usage, retention, upsell, cross-sell, very traditional things. We're then also looking at channel within our own properties, what channels are really driving that engagement and usage and how do those things come together along with persona. So we have an audience of upwards of 12 million users using our products, but they're all really different. And the way that they clean is really different. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to and watching the one-to-one consumer marketing podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Aaron Bonsang, who is head of own channels, web e-commerce and CRM at iRobot, which is a global robot company that has sold more than 40 million robots worldwide. You might have one in your home. Aaron, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thanks, Ben. I'm thrilled to be here and talk about the state of marketing. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to get into a lot of topics today. You know, before we dig in, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, kind of your background and how you ended up at your current role? Yeah, sure. So I've been in this space for over 20 years and I've had the luxury of working on a variety of different brands. But I, I actually started in the consumer segmentation and targeting side of the business right when I got out of school. And I was working for a company called Epsilon. And we were doing a lot of targeting for one of their fundraising clients, Special Olympics. So that proved to be like an amazing groundwork for me to understand more about targeting, recency, frequency, understanding acquisition. And their model was all about acquiring new consumers to donate to the cause and then basically continuing donations with existing owners. And so that was awesome work. But what I think I discovered coming out of it was really to understand that there are multiple facets, Ben, of marketing and really where did I want to play. And where I landed coming out of that is I wanted to be closer to the customer strategy, the execution, the actual front-end experience. So I made the move actually to agency side where I spent about 10 to 15 years on and off at a variety of different agencies in New York and the greater Boston area. After doing that for a while, I ended up then making the move to brand or client side which is really where I've been for almost the past 10 years. Started in the toy space, working for Hasbro. They're based here in the Northeast and worked on, they were going through a digital transformation, heavy focus on engagement with their own channels, and then joined iRobot in 2019, just as they were starting a digital transformation. So I've been lucky that I'm able to play in a bunch of different areas of marketing and it's super fun. It's constantly changing. Yeah, I believe it. You know, you mentioned also digital transformation at two of those companies. I'm sure that's a yeah. major topic uh, in a lot of a lot of places that you've been at. And also that switch between brand side, agency side. A lot of marketers I speak to on the podcast also make that switch at one point in their careers. I'm curious for you, what drove that? Did you decide you wanted to just go in-house to focus on a brand or was it what kind of made the shift for you? Yeah, what ended up happening is actually a boss that I had worked for on agency side had been recruited to Hasbro to lead some of their digital transformation. And so as he was building out that team, they reached out to me. And so that was sort of how I made the parlay. And then the iRobot role actually was contacted by a recruiter and that's how I ended up there. So it wasn't a, hey, I'm done with agency. I want to move to brand. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you, it has been such a phenomenal learning experience because I think on agency side, what I realized is I had a purview into like one element of the overall business. And now being brand side, there's just so much more complexity, honestly, that I didn't have an appreciation for. And I had a hard time selling in work 
now that I'm on the brand side, I understand all of these other levers that were often at play behind the scenes that I didn't know about. So I now just have a better understanding of how decisions are made, how do activations actually come to life, and what are those requirements in order to align an organization to drive progress? Yeah, I believe it. You get so much more insight into, like you said, all of the different components that make up a a customer experience, which are hard when you get just an isolated glimpse at that when you're at the the agency side. Also sounds like you went through a, I would say, typical journey for marketers in the sense that, you know, when you do great work, uh, when people go to new companies, they bring you along with them because they want want to keep you. Yeah. It's a small world, Ben. It's a super small world. And I think that's so important is the building those relationships because you never know who you're going to work with again or more tangentially who you may work with three degrees removed. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's the, like you said, very small world. It's you know, super small world. <laughs> you mentioned, obviously, you know, you've been uh, in marketing for a while. You've been part of digital transformations. How how do you summarize kind of the, the current state of consumer marketing today? What's, you know, what does it look like to you? It's frenetic is how <laughs> I would describe it because I think the rules, the playbook kind of had to be thrown out the window with the pandemic, which mm-hmm. is is good, but that doesn't mean all elements of the playbook are thrown out. I think what it just comes down to is you've got to look at the channels that you're using. You've got to look at your target. You've got to look at your messaging. You've got to look at your experiences and you have to continually improve them and say like, are we doing the best that we can here or can we do more? And I think that it's easy to assume like once you've got that foundation, you build on it. But I think what has really become clear over the past three to five years is like that foundation has totally changed as well. So it's super, super frenetic. I love that. That's what feeds me. That's the excitement of what is marketing. What I think I'm going to do on Monday and Friday usually totally change. And that to me is really energizing because I think we're in an environment right now where you could put forth the best laid plans on a PowerPoint, but until you get out there and you actually see what's happening, you don't really know what your plan is. Like you don't really know how effective the strategy is. And you just have to be willing on the moment to say, that made sense on paper. It made sense in an Excel, but it's not making sense in reality. So I can stick to it, but I don't know what that's going to get me or I can pivot. Yeah, I think frenetic, a great way of describing that. And also that, you know, as marketers, by our very nature, we should probably accept the fact that everything is a very, very rapid pace of change yes. and we need to be willing to to shift and pivot very quickly. You know, I think, like you said, the best laid plans can be made to waste very, very quickly in a rapidly changing environment. And marketing is really ultimately just a constant feedback process and, and improving and iterating. Yes. So I think staying in tune to that is is so important. Speaking of kind of staying in tune to the current reality, I think what I'm seeing a lot from the people I speak yeah. to is that yeah. retention and lifecycle marketing is becoming like a very big focus right now as, you know, I don't want to, I'm going to have to say doing less with more. Everyone's sick of hearing that, but I think no, that's but the it's reality. true. Yeah. And so how that's... does that fit into your company and what you're doing and how kind of how do you think about retention? Yeah. So there, there are a couple of things and maybe it would help me frame for the listener our category. You know, Mm -hmm. we are in the robotic vacuum cleaner category. We essentially founded and built the category. There's obviously other players that are out there today. But it's important to state that these products, they're at a high price point, anywhere from $300 to $1,100, $1,200. It's a lot of money. And it's a big investment right now. And it's a big investment over time. So you have the products for three to five years. It's not a one and done. 
and the products, they're integrated into your daily routine. They're cleaning your kitchen every day, maybe multiple times a day. So when we think about that customer lifetime value, it's a long time. And so what we have to do throughout that process is continually deliver value. And so there are a couple of ways that we look at it. We're looking at the phase of the customer lifecycle, meaning owner onboarding, owner engagement, usage, retention, upsell, cross-sell, very traditional things. We're then also looking at channel within our own properties, what channels are really driving that engagement and usage and how do those things come together along with persona. So we have an audience of upwards of 12 million users using our products, but they're all really different. And the way that they clean is really different. So an example of that would be is you have some, I would say, clusters of people. They don't ever want to touch the robot. They just want to use their app for everything, set up a schedule, set up a map, set up keep out zones and have it all run automated. You have other people that never want to go into the app and they just want to press the clean button. All of those things are valid and super useful. So what we have to think about is how do we talk to those people differently? And ultimately, what's really, really important is that they're using their product. Like that's the end game, right? Because the more that you use the product, the more that you see all the work that this robot is doing for you. I was running my i7 today and I was just emptying the bin and I got to see all of the dust from my dog that was on the floor. Now that may sound a little kind of gross, but it's really important because you see, wow, I was walking in this mess and now now I'm seeing the machine doing that, that for me. So it's the target, it's the channel, it's that overall usage and where they are in the life cycle. I think there are a couple things that we're really learning. One is we have to nail onboarding. So our products are robots. People have a lot of different expectation around a robot. They say like, oh, Ben, I bought a robot. It should be able to do X, Y, or Z. And the way that I describe it a lot to people, it's like, it is a robot, but you've got to help give it some training wheels along the way. And like the best way to think about it initially is almost like a pet in the sense of you've got to take it out of the box. You've got to set it up. You've got to let it run your house. And putting that investment in upfront will help you make sure you get the best out of it on the other end. And if we mm-hmm. don't do that right, what we find is, is that users aren't setting the schedule. They're not running the machine. They're not seeing all of these additional features that we know can help improve their quality of life. So we got to nail that. The other piece of that, what we found is, is that the frame of reference many people may have is like an upright vacuum. So it's like, I go into the closet, I pull it out, I plug it in, I run it, my floors look clean and I'm done. This is a different scenario of Mm -hmm. how you actually use an interface, the product. We have to teach you a little bit differently. So it's setting up onboarding. It's things like, if you stop using, well, why did you stop? And so we've started to identify, are there robot factors or lifestyle factors? So lifestyle factor may be, did you move? Did you have a baby? It could be as simple as like, did you rearrange your room? And now the connection with the Wi-Fi is off. So how do we start to see that prompt and say, hey, Ben, it looks like maybe you have an issue. Let us connect you with some resources. So onboarding is critical. We also then look at things like once you hit a certain number of hours of usage or missions queen, you may be ready for that next product. But I think for us, what we want to make sure is we're telling Ben what's the right product for you based upon how you're using the product today. Otherwise, it's just marketing spam. It's not relevant. So it's like, it's got to be more personalized. So kind of a, a long answer to a short question, but it's complex in terms of how we think about it. Yeah, and I think you touched on so many important things there too, right? The 
high like average order value that you have means you really have to create like a great experience for those people and you're ultimately trying to increase usage in order to increase lifetime value because hopefully there's an opportunity to upsell and cross sell them new homes, new rooms, new floors. I'm sure there's tons of scenarios you have mapped out too. And there are. I like that you broke out into, you know, that life cycle phase, you know, targeting channel and who is the persona. Maybe diving into that a tiny bit, can you, yeah. it sounds like you've identified, I guess, key events or like areas in which you might think, okay, usage is going to drop here, like trigger points basically in that customer journey. What are you identifying? You mentioned a few of them. And also, how are you then acting on it to really like try to re-engage those different personas? Yeah, so we have a pretty good understanding of how robots function within the household. So we have a lot of cues and data points to help us then start to understand if the user is struggling. I think the simplest place is patterns. So if we're seeing that you're running every single day and then suddenly that stops for a week, that's an indicator that something has changed. Mm-hmm. And now it could be an indicator that you as a user made that change or something else happened. And so an example like that, what we're starting to think about is do we queue some type of outreach to you through email that says, hey, Ben, we've seen that you've had an issue. Can we help you out? So it's things like pattern changes. It's things like errors. So if you had a bin full error and you haven't run in a week, that's probably a cue of like, you probably just need to empty the bin, but maybe you got busy with other things in your life and let us give you a little added value. One of the things we've also worked on pretty hard is within our in-app experience, we call it coaching and just really helping a user as they're running into issues, troubleshoot through those issues. So I would say Mm -hmm. it's it's looking at that robot data, but looking at it over time for trends, because the one-offs can send you down rabbit holes that are not not meaningful or relevant. Yeah, I can totally see that. Like they might've just gone on vacation for a week and it might not be the same type of trigger. Um, Correct. Personal story, it's also true that every time, so I have a robot vacuum and I also have a cat. And whenever I do open that little bin every night to empty it out. I'm always amazed by how much is in there. That does create like a nice, a nice aha moment. It does. Yeah. In terms of the level of, I think you're working with a level of data that's very interesting because you have app usage data, but you also have the actual data from the robot and like the activity that's going on there, which gives you such deep insight into like how your product is being used. I'm sure it also creates some pretty big challenges in terms of how you're identifying like those moments in the customer journey and like the trigger points, essentially. Can you talk through a little bit what you see as the biggest challenges when it comes to retention and loyalty? I think the biggest challenge is one that most marketers have is having that truly unified view of their customer across a product. And so in this case, it would be the robot, the app, but then also within marketing. And how do all of those things come together so that we fully have a view? I think the desired end state would be we understand how Ben is interacting with the product, what communications Ben is receiving, but then also, more importantly, like, has Ben called us with an issue? Because if Ben has called us with an issue, probably not the right moment for us to suggest upgrading Ben to another product or cross selling him and in, say into a mock that we don't want to do. That I think is the hardest piece. Because to your point, these are high AOV products, we have to deliver a premium experience pre, during, and post. And so to me, a key enabler to that is like, I have a truly 360 view of who that customer is. And at any given moment, I can understand their sentiment with us. I would say we're making progress against figuring that, but we still have a lot of work to do there. We also, 
want to ensure that we're respecting the privacy of our customers and that we're pulling in data that's only relevant for the purposes of delivering them more personalized communication. So there's there's a balance there of not all data is created equal. Not all data is necessary. So it's like, how do you balance those two things, especially as like we're going into a cookie-less world? What has fascinated me about this experience with iRobot is you've got a physical robot, you've got the app on top of it, and then you've got that experience across all of the channels. I had a little bit of that at Hasbro, but what we have here is the intelligence of the robot mixed with the intelligence of the app and those two things working together is really powerful, which gives me as a marketer, I would say huge runway to tell stories and talk about things differently. So an example would be is most consumers name their robot. There's a lot of fun there in terms of how people name their robot. Like what? What's the most common name? I think it's Rosie. But there's personification with the product. So there's a lot of arms and legs there to talk about the experience of ownership that I'm really trying to push harder in this role. Yeah, I love that. That also fits kind of with your pet analogy of like, this is another addition to the family to some extent. They're an extension of that. I mean, you mentioned a few things as well. Unification of your view of the customer, kind of the engagement layer that exists that's on top of that and also privacy concerns as you know you're collecting a lot of data obviously you're collecting data about people's homes too uh, in terms of yes. like the mapping and everything so i'm sure that gets complicated pretty quickly like how are you managing that complexity in terms of privacy and then also how are you kind of engaging people in channels in a way that feels kind of privacy safe so i think there's a couple elements of it the first is proceed with caution and do no harm Um, Mm -hmm. And having that mindset and ensuring that when we think about things like our overall privacy policy experience, how do we talk to our consumers about what that privacy experience looks like? And right now, I would say what we have covers the bases in terms of privacy policy. But what we've also started thinking about is how do we weave that more into the journey so that we're able to transparently help consumers understand how we are using that information? We don't sell any consumer information much like other brands, we we don't do any of that. It's really more of how are we pulling in key data points that feel relevant to you? And we're doing it in such a way that feels safe and not creepy. So I would say it's certainly a work in progress, Ben. It's one that we've identified as a critical initiative for us this year to really better map out what that experience looks like. Yeah. And I think that's something we're seeing too with a lot of our customers is this idea of if you provide value, people are often willing to provide their data. And it's just about creating a transparent communication around that and being very open and honest. And then you're already on very different footing than if you're tracking people everywhere and kind of snooping on them across channel. You know, there's very specific ways that you can create a much better framing for the whole privacy issue. And it also is what's going to impact your ability to personalize and your ability to kind of create a great brand experience for them as well. I think the other piece is timing. So Mm -hmm. timing in the customer journey around where you talk about privacy is really, really important. One of the things that we've seen is the products do require care and feeding post-purchase, just Mm -hmm. like any investment of that size. But there's a balance of how much you talk about that pre-sale during post because it can start to feel overwhelming. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've really tried to balance is it is a robot. And there's, a, I said, a baseline expectation of what people think a robot can and can't do. And it's not uniform. It's just based on what people have seen in the zeitgeist. So what we've also looked at is, is 
where pre and post do we talk about it? And a lot of it is, is as consumers start to see the benefits of what those recommendations are, their comfort level changes. But if you don't message it the right way and serve it up at the right time in the customer journey, it can be off-putting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So practically speaking, is that kind of based on the data that you're seeing in terms of usage, that's when you decide to trigger certain messages around what types of data you could collect or that's when you kind of automate that interaction? It's more about, I would say, what we start to see is when you talk about privacy a lot during pre-sale, if you don't give the specificity, it can make people concerned. As they start to use the product and see the benefits of it, they become more comfortable with it. So that's kind of the nuance. And so then Mm -hmm. it's looking at the marketing language of how you talk about it and make sure that it's matching those expectations. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, personalization, you've touched on how you do that, obviously, both pre, post, sale. How are you doing that in terms of connecting one-to-one to customers? You know, you mentioned these different personas, like different usage types, the fact, you know, some people name their robot, some people don't. How are you then building that experience and connecting one-to-one? So back up a couple baseline. One is our catalog is probably not on the same scale as, say, at Nordstrom. Mm. So when you look at the, the mix of products, especially for pre-purchase to personalize, you're looking at 10 to 20. So when you think about that personalization by product, it's a little bit simpler than I would say a traditional apparel or fashion retailer. What we're really focused in on is personalizing for our two to three core segments and making sure that we're talking to the purchase drivers for those core segments. And some of it is is there's just differences in motivators, right? So not surprising, someone who owns pets is likely a target for our products, right? Because Mm -hmm. of the section and product features that we have that are targeted at pets, like object detection, object avoidance. The personalization there is visuals and copy that pay off those motivators. Post-purchase, it's a little bit different in the sense that we know in-app what products you have. We start to better understand how you're using the machine. So the personalization that happened there is really one-to-one in terms of your coaching experience. So there's baseline activities that we want you to do, set up a schedule, map your house. If there are certain zones of your house that we know think below your kitchen table that get dirty every day, let's set up a like a cleaning zone there and you're going to clean your house every day at six o'clock. So there it becomes really, really personalized and one-to-one based on your robot, your usage and your overall cleaning patterns. So it's a, it's a little bit different. I would say pre-purchase, we are looking across web and email to personalize based on what products that we think are right for you mixed with those target demos. Yeah, I love that. Just and it's also, I mean, it, I'm sure it gets complex, but the simplicity of like, okay, what is the the buying trigger here? And then what is the usage trigger? And, and really personalizing the journey to ultimately increase adoption for you. I mean, what channels are you seeing work well as, as you're doing this both, I guess, probably more post-sale in the, the retention space, but I'd love to understand how you're actually engaging with people. Do you go beyond the app? Do you go beyond email? What are you seeing? Yeah, it's a great question. There are two channels that we're seeing a ton of success on today, which is email and app. And when email and app work together, that's where the greatest power lies. And the reason for that is we know that users are checking email more frequently than they're checking app. In some cases, for if a user has 
the standard scheduled maps, everything set up, they may not actually need to go into their app that frequently. So we're able to leverage email as sort of that awareness driver, notification driver, et cetera. But really where we're seeing success is highly, highly contextual benefit-driven. And when I say benefit-driven, it is here's a recommendation for you, Ben, based on the product that you have, based on the usage that you have, based on a trigger, we want you to consider X. And that X could be, we think you should map another room. The recommendation could be, you know what? It looks like your rollers only have 10 hours of usage left. It might be time to upgrade. But we're showing you the data in app that shows, hey, the average roller is, I'm making it up, expecting to get 200 hours of usage. You've used 190. It might be time to upgrade. If we give you that reasoning versus saying buy more rollers, we see a lot of success. And so where app and email are working together is that we're using the data to inform what we're telling you versus, hey, we've got this product on sale. I think app is really interesting because, as I said, some consumers, they prefer sort of the old school clean button. And then we have consumers that want the app. But there's a lot of great experiences in app that when we can merchandise them to you at the right time and then back them up with email, we see some great engagement. And so we're thinking about those tailwinds and how do we push those further in 2023? Because I think I'm sure you're hearing from some of your other clients, like costs of acquisition are going up everywhere. And so because of that, how do you lean into the channels where you already have an engaged consumer base? And we're really lucky we have that through app and then also further amplified through email. Yeah, I love that. And it's essentially good marketing doesn't feel like marketing, right? And when you're offering value through something like contextualizing the reasons for the reach out through the data point of their own usage, I think it feels much more personal. It feels like you're actually offering value, like you said, versus just, hey, here's another product. Why don't you buy it? And that makes a lot of sense as far as maximizing the lifetime value that you can get from a customer. You know, maybe we've talked a lot about what you are doing at iBot and a bit on your past, like looking forward, what is kind of a trend that you're really excited about or kind of a technology that you think is going to be big in the space? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things like I'm certainly not a good forecaster. I think no one would have known a year ago that ChatGPT would blow up the way that it did. But I certainly think AI is here to stay and won't go anywhere. And so thinking about how do you use AI to accelerate decision points or conversely, like remove friction points? So I'm a big believer of like, you can experience growth just by decreasing mental load for customers. Like, I think that's one of the biggest things that we've seen is that the bar for what is considered mental load is really low right now. Meaning like the day-to-day experience of going through life post-COVID is really hard. It's just really hard. And so little improvements throughout the customer journey can actually add up to a lot of growth. And at a time maybe where other channels can't, like if you just look at throughout our customer experience, how do you make things easier? And I'll give you an example. We discovered that um, within our card experience, we had a promo code button that users were actually thinking that that was how they submitted their order. And it was causing a lot of friction within our sales teams because they said people are trying to submit their order see the promo code it won't go through like why isn't the cart working and we realized that the design just of that experience and button was costing us money so we've now rolled out a new design and now that's become we've reduced that friction but that helps with things like conversion rate so like it's finding those small things along the way i don't think that will go away i also think that delivering i would say Thinking about experience as a differentiator, I don't think will go away. I think 
by and large, consumers' expectations, especially for high price points, are really, really high right now. And if you don't meet at every step of the way, there's so many other options that are out there that they'll likely abandon. So the more that you can focus in on those improvements and demonstrate that they're working in terms of pre-post performance, but then also, hey, if we were to do this across X markets or if we were to do this across X channels, this is what it could mean. We've started to see a lot of success there. That's a little bit of a, like a mindset shift, I think, because on the surface, it's not a new technology. It's really more of optimizing within what you have. Yeah, I love that. I think it's also, you know, it's our job as marketers, not just to obviously make those small tweaks, but to be able to report on them. And so I think that's, you know, the power of compounding when it comes to conversion rates across your customer journey is truly pretty amazing. So when you put that in front of executives of a board at a company, it creates a very powerful narrative for why you should invest in things like conversion rate optimization at your different different stages. And also that personalization aspect, I think, is one that shouldn't be forgotten when essentially there's so much competition everywhere and the you know buyers really have the power. Like they can get all of the they information do. about all of these products. And so brands that differentiate themselves through amazing experience are the ones that are going to win their market. And so it's it's very clear when you do things like conversion rate optimization, you're benefiting the business through a, a specific conversion point improvement, but you're also improving the customer experience too, because I'm sure not that many customers were loving the fact that they were trying to check out and they couldn't check out because they had the promo code uh, box. So I think those are two examples that work very well hand in hand. I think the other piece that we've really been spending some time reflecting on is, especially within direct-to-consumer, which is the majority of the focus that my team does, we've recognized a couple of things. One is the experience of buying in D2C today, not just in our category, but in general. I had a woman on my team describe it as a jungle gym. It's just, you're moving back and forth between manufacturers' experiences, competitors, retail.xx, a variety of different places. So you just have to accept that. The idea that this journey is like step one, two, three, four on your own properties isn't really realistic. Yeah. Two, What you have to then remember is every facet of the experience must work together. When I say experience, I'm not just talking the front-end UI and a website. It's more about what is the value proposition of the category? How do I decide what products are right for me? How do I know and how do I feel good that I'm buying from you versus somewhere else? How do I know that I can track my product from the moment that I hit submit till it gets down to my house? How do I know that it's going to be easy when I set up this product and it's going to do what I want. How do I know that when I run into an issue that I'm not going to feel alone and that you're going to be there to mm-hmm. support you? Like all of those pieces. So it's, you know, it's demand gen, it's onsite experience, it's logistics, it's fulfillment, it's, you know, product onboarding, like all of those things together. What I like to say is like we're being measured at every single gate and we're either meeting or not at each of those gates and where the really big growth occurs is when all of those things are working together. And I would say we've made great progress in addressing all those things, but there's still a lot more opportunity to improve within those elements. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's becoming the marketer's job more and more is mastering all those different facets yeah. and bringing them together in a cohesive journey. And maybe that leads to my next question, which is, you know, for you, what would be the kind of top three pieces of advice or things that you would tell other marketers, you know, things you know now that you wish you knew at the start of your career? I think one of the biggest changes that I've seen, and it's phenomenal, but when I started in the workplace, it wasn't really an area of focus. It was just voice of the customer. 
in the past, if I think about it at the beginning of my career, marketers made decisions often based on gut and not data. And we now live in a world where you have a plethora of data. Use that to guide your decisions because even though gut and years of schooling or experience are critical, because the environment that we're in right now is changing so rapidly, it's just not a reliable input anymore, is my perspective. Like we've had enough conversations where we thought based on our experience, X, Y, Z was right. And then we put it into testing and we were totally wrong. And so the days of gut versus data, like we're pushing really, really hard of like, no, it's got to be based on some form of data quant or qual. So that's a big one. And that changed drastically, I would say, since I started working at agencies or whatnot. I mean, I don't think Mm -hmm. we did some testing with consumers, but not to the degree of input that we're getting right now. That's a huge shift. I think especially if you're in digital, which is where I've really played, the amount of information that you have at your fingertips is phenomenal. And I think oftentimes marketers sometimes think that's not enough or they need to create something different. Oftentimes what I've found is most of the guidance is really in that data. And then I think the last piece is I can remember hours that I spent on a presentation for a client. And I spent hours on getting the story right, getting the format right, and getting it into PowerPoint, and then being disappointed where either it didn't go where I wanted or it didn't you know, scale the way that I wanted. And I think the biggest shift that I've seen is we're kind of of the mindset of like, just get out there and try something. It sounds like progress over perfection, and it is, but it's more about just get out there, be agile. It's okay if it's half-baked and see what happens. And you may find that your ingoing assumptions were spot on. And now you have some data to validate it, or you may find that they were not and that you need to rework. But better to figure that out sooner than I would say like, you know, baking this perfect cake and presenting it to the world and discovering that your audience didn't want cake, they wanted pizza. Yeah, I think that's so key, especially with how quickly the environment is always changing. You know, marketing is essentially a feedback process. And the faster you can close that feedback loop, the more you're going to perform as a marketer and and as a brand in a very, very competitive space. So I think that those are, yeah, three great pieces of advice. You know, as someone who doesn't like to forecast, I hesitate to ask you this question. I know. I still have to ask, five years from now, what do you think the future of consumer marketing looks like? I think many of the core channels that we have today will still remain, but they will continue to evolve. So I think within, you know, e-commerce, features and technology that, like I said, reduce mental load and just make processes that are too time consuming today, those won't go away and those will further accelerate. Social, I think, is really fascinating. I think we're seeing an interesting inflection point with social where there's some wear out that's happening with some of the, I would say, more traditional platforms. Obviously, the algorithm that we're seeing from TikTok is super, super attractive and sticky. So there's there's an evolution that's happening there. I think we're seeing the next phase of social. I think the players in that space may look different five years than they do for right now. I think that experience as a differentiator isn't going away. What will that look like in five years? I don't know. I think what I see is that people want to be entertained. Life day to day is so hard that people are viewing, that may be a stretch, but brands that can do storytelling really well and either cause for reflection, make you laugh, make you think about something differently, those brands will do really well. I also think brands that are able to talk about facets of the experience, supply chain or sustainability or 
that idea of, hey, I'm going to buy X and every X I buy, you're going to make a donation. I don't think those things will go away because I think people then can say, oh, I feel really good about buying from this brand for X, Y, Z reason. I think that will all stay, but I think that will continue to evolve because I think what we want is as we're making these purchases, it's not just the transaction. It's the feeling that I get as I make this purchase. It's a reflection of me and my personality, but it's also a reflection of me doing some form of good. And Mm -hmm. I think that form of good is what's still kind of being worked out lately. It's all, I would say, you see a lot about sustainability. That's critical. I don't think that's going anywhere, but I think that will continue to evolve. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that especially younger generations are seeing their like consumption as really a reflection of themselves. And so they're really purchasing more from brands that align yes, with that. that align. Yes, yeah. I agree. And I also think that what I like the way that you kind of moved back onto storytelling because storytelling is so key to kind of connect with humans at the end of the day. And even though we're swimming yes. in all this data, like the data is a foundation to tell a good story and see if that story lands and then adapt your story. But the story is still so key to how we differentiate ourselves. So yeah, I love that. Aaron, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much for for joining the podcast. You know, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, as always, you know, I love having conversations like this. And you're sitting on such a unique experience too, with like the data you have from your actual product plus app. So it's really been wonderful to hear from you and get those insights, you know, before we wrap up, and if people want to follow your journey, where should they go? Yeah, so I'm not big on Twitter, but I would say certainly find me on LinkedIn. Um, You can find all of the work that my team is doing across the iRobot.com ecosystem. Okay, great. Well, you heard her. Go check out Erin Bonsang on LinkedIn. Um, Send her a DM if you listen to the episode and want to connect. And same thing here. Uh, Please always open to feedback. Feel free to DM me or drop a comment into the podcast. And if you want to follow our work, we are Spectrum. So go check out spectrum.io or check us out on LinkedIn. And you can hear a lot more about messaging if you are following the podcast. Thank you so much for listening today and have a great rest of your day. 